0: Hello and welcome to Stories of the Second World War. Today I'm honored to be joined by a World War II internet legend, Johnny, founder of the historical YouTube channel Potential History. Potential History is a YouTube channel that focuses on many aspects of military history, especially events that occurred during World War II. As many of you are probably familiar with Potential History, you'll know that Johnny has been producing a series about Operation Barbarossa. Today's episode will serve as a wrap-up of the Barbarossa series, so if you haven't watched the previous videos in that series, I encourage you to do so. Here at Stories of the Second World War, we're in the process of launching a YouTube channel of our own, so do be sure to subscribe to that in the description as well. Johnny, welcome to the podcast. Yes, thank you for having me. Well, it's such a pleasure to have you on, especially because I've been a fan of your YouTube channel for quite some time, so this is a real treat for me. Well, you've produced an excellent three-part series on Operation Barbarossa, Mm -hmm. the German invasion of the Soviet Union that began in the summer of 1941. What is the most important thing to keep in mind about the contrasting strengths and weaknesses of the German army and the Russian army during the first months of the campaign? I mean, simply put, how did the Soviet army measure up to the German army right away at the start of Barbarossa in 1941.
1: I think there's kind of two ways you can, you can look at it specifically, and they both kind of get looked at without looking at the other. One of them is the fact that uh, the Red Army had, before this, fought in Poland, fought in Finland, and both of those campaigns were, they were very unimpressed with their ability to uh, finish their objectives there. In Finland, they get bogged down. By this small country um, using basically guerrilla tactics, that sometimes you could call it, and it takes them forever to uh, finally win the war and do what they hope to do. A lot of that is Stalin's meddling and wanting a, a really fancy, impressive kind of move into there, and they eventually go with the uh, with the original plan of just cutting into uh, going to the Finnish capital. But also in Poland, uh, there's the the Soviets and the Germans alike are very unimpressed with what with what the Red Army does in there. Um, they, they don't see it as being too capable of an army. And uh, the third part that's a little more important that I think is kind of left out is uh, them fighting the Japanese in Mongolia um, very recently from there. And uh, that's the one place that the Soviets kind of realize, oh, this is how we should be. And it's Zhukov who eventually goes out and you know does a lot of the major offensives in World War II as a big major player. But that's one part where they have something where they go, OK, we like this. This is what we should still be doing. We need to modernize the Red Army, uh, rework ourselves to figure out how we can be better at this and achieve what we want to. And the Germans come in right in the middle of that transition. So they're transitioning vehicles. They're moving away from the BTs and T-26s and trying to rearm with T-34s, KVs, all the, all the really scary tanks that are kind of overly talked up by the Germans. Um, But those are very rare. They don't have a lot of them there yet. And um, they're also trying to just modernize their tactics, uh, work on combined arms better. That's something they really failed at in Finland. And so right in the middle of working on all of this, the Germans hit them. And it's kind of this chaotic moment for the Red Army going, okay, we're in the middle of transition. Um, The Germans keep encircling us. They keep pushing us back. And it's only really once you see the Germans start to stop and um, sort of lag behind uh, with the southern turn and things like that that the Soviets are able to really – the Soviets are able to really um, reconstitute themselves and are able to be much more of a cohesive defense that bogs down the Germans more and more as they get to Moscow. So that's one end. Um, The Soviets are obviously not happy with uh, the Red Army at the time, and they're trying to rework it. The other side of it is the Germans who see the Red Army as kind of what you would see it as at that point, as something that's not very effective. It needs to be worked on. But they take that one um, sizing up of it and they say, oh, the Red Army's not very good. Therefore, we are good and uh, we are going to just flatten them. You know, there's there's not much to worry about. Um, and it's overconfidence to this nth degree that is Really incredible. Um, certain things like uh the supply officers are saying that, you know, you you have this campaign planned for fifteen months. We only have supplies for or sorry, not months, fifteen weeks. And then uh we only have supplies for ten weeks before it's gonna stop. I don't recall if these are those are the exact numbers off the top of my head, but something like that. And the planners just go, okay, we'll make the we'll make the operation ten weeks. And they don't change anything else to it. They just say, Oh, we'll just go faster. And so they move some of the dates up, but they don't change anything that you would really need to. They don't change their objectives. They don't anything like that. The Germans are utterly convinced that they're going to walk in, destroy the Red Army within the first couple hundred kilometers. Um, and they think really by the time they take Minsk and Smolensk, there's not going to be anything left. And so after that, they don't really need to plan. It's going to be kind of this walking conquest because the Red Army is going to be destroyed and the Soviet Union will have fallen apart. And even as the operation begins and as later on into September, November, they're seeing things not going their way and they're very much past their deadline for when they were supposed to be done and demobilized and send the workers back to their factories. They really don't have a huge change of heart as to we should be doing something else. Um, they're grinding their divisions down to nothing. Um, they are in desperate need of replacements. They've lost a lot of tanks and the order is still go. The order is still keep moving forward. And you have commanders on the ground going, I can try to move forward, but I don't know how successful this is going to be. I'm really fighting attrition here. And the people, you know, back in the planning room are going, well, you need to go forward. That's, that's part of the plan. You need to keep doing it. And it's really this, um, the, the basis for their idea in the beginning, you could say is somewhat sound for how unimpressive the Red Army has been. But once they start seeing the reality of this isn't going to be as much of a steamroll as we thought it was, this is actually becoming problematic, they just don't change what they're planning to do. And they just continue on and on into this. Um, and so, you know, the Soviets at the beginning, not very happy with themselves, really kind of changing up. But the Germans, aware of this, very overconfident still, for people that they think will not be difficult to knock over. So um, it all kind of stems from that poor uh, Red Army performance in the previous two campaigns. They both kind of have different conclusions they draw from it. The Soviets going, we need to get better. And then suddenly when the Germans invade going, oh, we need to get better now and really you know, kick it into high gear. And the Germans going, oh, these guys are terrible. And then once they're seeing evidence of them actually fighting back and putting together a good defense and things like that. They still have that assumption in their head that they can't, that they can't get rid of. And it even goes further on into, in 1942 during operation blue, they're thinking like, Oh, well this will just be, you know, we, we almost killed them last time. This will just be the death blow. It won't be that difficult. And then, um, operation blue ends catastrophically. Um, the Germans don't really begin to take the Soviets seriously. um, until probably 1943, and they still go on with uh, the Kursk attack. So it's, it's something that when reading firsthand accounts and seeing the generals say things like, wow, the Soviets are a lot more, uh, they're a lot harder fighters than we thought they were. But then turning around and making decisions that seem to fly in the face of that, it's, it's very odd.
0: Well, certainly, and I was going to ask you about this. You know, you mentioned the two previous campaigns of the Red Army, one of which is the famous Winter War that, of course, ended in disaster for the Red Army. Now, one of the several reasons why the Red Army did so poorly in the Finnish campaign was because of the Great Purge, the lack of established and experienced leadership the Red Army had in the higher ranks of its divisions, officers and what have you? Were some of the same consequences that the Red Army had been dealt during the Winter War experienced in 1941 during Operation Barbarossa? I mean the Winter War in Finland ended in, I believe it was March of 1940, Operation Barbarossa is in summer of nineteen forty one. So do we see some of the same failures repeating themselves in the opening months of this campaign
1: um sort of so purged doesn't always mean uh completely killed and purged a lot of the commanders that were purged in fact the vast majority that were purged were sent out east to gulags and once the soviets needed commanders and they needed troops they would pardon those people immediately and then have them go command a unit at the front so um People talk about the purges a lot and how much of an effect they have. I think that would have more of a, uh, more of a bearing on the winter war when the Soviets weren't in panic mode and they were okay with keeping these people on the sidelines. But once the Germans come in and it's literally the, the fight for the country, um, they take all those people out and they go, okay, you know, you're out of prison. You know, you can, you can serve your time basically by, uh, commanding units on the front. And, um, some of them actually, do some fairly fantastic uh, defensive moves and actually um, are, are great assets to the Red Army as the war continues. So um, the Soviets very much immediately lessen the effects of the purge as soon as the Germans come in because they bring all these people back. Um, the biggest problem that the Soviets had was they didn't quite understand how to stop a German offensive, how to stop a uh, Bewegungskrieg offensive. And what you need to do there is you don't want to have all your troops at the front because they'll just break through and get encircled. What you need is to have defenses in depth where you can wear down the pincers and you can possibly slow the encirclement or counterattack it as soon as it's encircled. And that's something they don't really understand terribly well until 1943 during the Battle of Kursk, where they have excellent defenses in depth and they completely just um, halt the offensive moves there. So that was something that took them a second to learn. But I don't think anybody who was um, who was taken out by the purges would necessarily have have immediately known that that was something that the Red Army as a whole kind of had to figure out. People all the time uh, criticize Stalin for not putting more troops right against the German-Soviet border when he was getting uh, warnings. And, you know, people even like Zhukov were saying we need more troops at the border. That wouldn't have necessarily he, he didn't say no, because he knew they would get encircled. And that's not the way you defend. He he said no, because he's worried about provoking the Germans. But he made a decision that was correct, even if it was for the wrong reasons in that you don't want a bunch of people against the German border. Because when the Germans come across, they're just going to encircle those people and move on. You need um, depth defenses to kind of blunt it and, and then counterattack. And so that was kind of the biggest lesson they had to learn. And that's what really took them a while in 1941. And they kept suffering from.
0: Okay, gotcha, gotcha. What were the initial moments of Operation Barbarossa like for the Germans? Were there any difficulties they encountered right away with their invasion? Or did they think it was going to be smooth sailing?
1: They're very impressed by the beginning of it. The, the, the thing that I think is most interesting, though, is uh, the number of casualties that you see. And that you talk about, you know, the the summer, the Germans just having this great wind streak and encircling all these Soviet troops. And that's true, but the price they're paying for it is something that they don't, that isn't really as much mentioned. Um, I heard, uh, I think it was Stahill mentioned, or Satino, somebody talk about how uh, the invasion of Crete that happened a few months previous. Um, Hitler's very careful with his airborne divisions after that because they lose so many troops, even though afterwards they do jump into Leningrad and have other airborne operations, he's very careful with not doing an airborne only operation anymore because he felt the losses were too bad. Um, But then once he invades the Soviet Union, he's losing, you know, orders of magnitude more than that in troops every month. Um, So, you know, you could say bigger risk, you know, bigger reward type thing. But the Germans are losing a lot of men. The the Wehrmacht that marches in to uh, Russia in June is very much not the same one that's there in November, December. Um, a lot of guys were lost. A lot of tanks were lost. A lot of people had to be rotated out. Um, the attrition on the German side is is pretty astounding, and it's not always something that's mentioned. So uh, at the very beginning, they were very happy with what they were doing. Um They were still losing a lot of troops. It's only later, around September, once you have them kind of taking a step back and going, oh, we have a few problems we need to fix.
0: What stakes did the Germans make in launching Operation Barbarossa? I mean, historically, many attempts at an invasion of Russia have ended in disaster, uh, not least of these Napoleon. So the Germans must have certainly put a lot on the line to hope to win this campaign.
1: Yeah, and there's two kind of uh, things that th- – there's one thing that they do and one thing that they assume that they think will make it better. The first thing that they do is they don't repeat Napoleon's mistake of just marching in with one column straight to Moscow. Um, they figured that'd be an easy way to c- get cut off and uh, just encircled and have the whole thing be lost. Um the initial plan had uh, two prongs of invasion that was later changed to three army group uh, north, center, south, uh, Leningrad, Moscow, Kiev, roughly. And so the idea is we're moving on this huge axis to where we won't get cut off. There, there won't be a catastrophic problem if anything we will get stopped and then resume. But the reason they don't think they'll get stopped and have to resume is that they're looking at the Soviet Union and they literally, Hitler uses the words, uh, a rotting structure Think that it cannot survive any amount of uh, any amount of trials and tribulations. That people will simply revolt against the regime, or the regime will collapse. Uh, it has a lot to do with their very racist worldview of it being a Judeo-Bolshevik bastion that just doesn't have the uh, the ability to fight and the ability to uh, keep up with uh, the Germans. You know, they'll fight harder, they'll fight better, and these these people just simply genetically aren't able to to hack it. Um, is what they're thinking, and so they think that because of this regime and because of all these people that that don't like Stalin and because communism is this flawed concept, um, just simply kicking in the door, the whole rotten structure will fall in, like the like the famous quote says. So they don't think that the Soviets will really be able to hack it in a way, um, and and they're almost kind of to a certain way proven right when they move into places like the Ukraine and and they're welcomed. As liberators from Stalin, you know, they see and in like the the Baltic areas, you know, all these people are happy to see the Germans come in because they're making the Russians leave. And um, they very quickly through uh, their uh, policies of mass extermination, turn that around and have people who are welcoming them fighting against them very quickly. Um, But it's mostly that they just think the Soviet Union doesn't have the ability to hold on and fight back like they should. They they just think it's going to collapse. And they're utterly convinced of this.
0: Now, when talking about the individual Soviet soldier, uh, as compared to the individual German soldier, or perhaps the tanks and military vehicles, airplanes, artillery of both armies, when they're being compared, what do you think most people, uh, tend to forget about the strengths of either side? And, and really in terms of the training, uh, combat experience and simply military force, which side do you think bore the greater strength.
1: I think the Germans definitely did on a man to man and tank to tank level. Um a lot said about the T-34s and the KVs being there that the German tanks couldn't penetrate and stuff, but they were very they were very rare. Um you didn't see a lot of those. So uh the German tanks with a nice five man crew layout, good division of labor, um for the most part there were still some tanks that didn't have two man, one man turrets. Um, but they're more the exception at this point, not the rule, unlike Poland and France. Um, they, they definitely had an ergonomic superiority and everything to the Russian tanks that were most common, the BTs and the T-26s that um, the Soviets were often sending in without adequate support, infantry or artillery. And they would oftentimes just get destroyed by German infantry um, uh, and anti-tank guns and, and not even German tanks. So on that kind of individual level, I think the average German soldier had better support, um, had better equipment, things like that than the average Soviet soldier. The problem is that they were kind of fighting this motorized war without having the motorization to back it up, where you have, you know, um, a good, you know, 20% of the German army is this mechanized force and it's moving on quickly and, you know. Um, supplies are rushing to catch up with it, the majority of the rest of the German army is just infantry, just walking in. And they have a lot of problems of the motorized troops outrunning the infantry to a point that it's getting dangerous, that the infantry is coming in to mop up and they're finding significant amounts of resistance that was supposed to be wiped out by the motorized divisions who are enacting these huge encirclements to where some of these Red Army troops don't even know they're encircled and they're fighting back and stuff. So the coordination between the two arms wasn't always great. The other problem that happens is at the beginning of the war, the Germans are well supplied. Everything's going great. As it goes on, that uh, the the thing I mentioned earlier of you, know, you only have supplies for this amount of time, then you're going to have to start, stop, and bring up more supplies. The Germans really feel that, and that really hurts their ability to move quickly and enact quick encirclements and things like that. And it's at that point that the Soviets are able to take a breath, organize themselves better, and create a better defense to where, as the Germans move forward, each time they stop, they're meeting more and more resistance with the Soviets being able to get better organized. So the Germans definitely start out with an advantage, even though it's not a numerical one. At the beginning, that very much wanes over time as this thing goes on longer and longer than they expect it to. Whereas um, as they're pushing towards Moscow, they're pushing towards the Soviet areas of supply. The Soviets are getting supplies faster, and it's taking longer for supplies from their jumping off point to get to them. And so you kind of see this swap throughout the campaign of who is really in a better position. And it's, it's from the Germans really just biting off more than they can chew and continuing to do things in the exact same way when they really should at least alter it somewhat or change their definitions of victory or you know say let's stop here and then maybe resume or something they just think no we're, we're taking the whole country during this operation we're literally going to keep trying until we physically can't and and that causes a lot of problems for them.
0: well when talking about russia during the second world war the famous soviet saying quantity has a quality all its own comes to mind especially in regards to the uh, soviet red army did this quote which is perhaps falsely attributed to Stalin. What do you make of it? Did it play is it an accurate description of the way that the Russians fought against the Germans during Operation Barbarossa?
1: Generally, when you're talking about the two armies in a single place fighting, you tend to have fairly equal and this goes throughout the war. Um the Soviets will mobilize and lose more troops throughout the war, but typically on an engagement basis engagement to engagement you have about the same amount of troops and tanks in a given area fighting each other at one time so you see the the large red army and you see the you know you see the numbers of red army soldiers that are in russia ready to go to the germans 3 or 4 million when they start and you think oh that's you know the the russians won by numbers but all those soldiers are spread out throughout the country and as they're bringing more in they're also losing more so it tends to be about the same mass fighting each other and it wasn't this whole you know the the soviets overwhelmed the germans by numbers thing because those numbers weren't ever there at one time it's it's soldiers being lost and soldiers being brought in same thing with the germans um so it tends to be kind of an equal number on the field at one time and where you see kind of the quantity versus quality thing is in um uh vehicles, uh tanks, uh trucks, things like that. They're able to crank those out at a significant speed to where they can outproduce the Germans. Um the the tanks they're making, you know, a German tanker would look at and go, you know, this is this isn't something fit for fighting in. You know, they're very crude and things like that, but they were able to produce them in incredible numbers. Um, to where they could continue to keep troops in the field. They could have um, a higher percentage of tanks ready for battle and a commander didn't have to worry about, okay, what percentage of my force do I have in the repair depot or is knocked out and I can't get replacements for it, things like that. Um, It's only really towards the end of the war that you see the Soviets have a, a massive, uh, like 44, 45, a huge numerical superiority over the Germans and their offensives and things like that. So for someone who was on the ground looking around, they wouldn't feel like the Soviets had a ton more people because they're spread out and guys are being lost as more being moved in.
0: Well, as everyone listening goes over to your YouTube channel and checks out the three-part series that you've done on Operation Barbarossa and continues to read and research about the campaign as well, what are some things you think that people often fail to remember about Operation Barbarossa, and maybe perhaps things that you didn't mention in your YouTube series?
1: Well, the first thing that comes to mind, and I did mention quite a bit, um, but one thing that always baffled me was the fact that there is no backup plan for this, that this thing either succeeds, or we're really in trouble here, <laughs> you know, or, or, you know, we continue next year or something. Um, they do move back their objective line a bit, um to it, it was the uh AA line, uh almost into uh Siberia. Then they moved it back to just behind Moscow. But still it's every time I would read something or look at the planning or something like that, there is literally no contingency plan for, okay, what if this doesn't go the way we think it will? How are we gonna recover ourselves? How are we gonna make sure that we don't just get invaded back? And they they don't have any ideas of how this is it, it doesn't even occur to them that that's an option. They think that they're going to go in and this whole thing is going to collapse and it's going to go exactly how they want it to go. And the thing that I've always kind of attributed that to is just how kind of shocking the fall of France was in that, you know, it's kind of taken for granted now and there's all kinds of jokes about the French surrendering. But when that happened, you know, when the, when the, when the Germans first went into France, people were almost taking it for granted that it was like, oh, you know, they're they're going to redo World War I again. The Germans are going to get stopped. It's going to be this whole thing. We're not looking forward to it, but we know how it's going to go. And then that's not what happens. The, the Germans march into Paris and then the French surrender. And the whole world is utterly stunned. And I think um, that had kind of an effect on the German military in a way of that. In World War I, they couldn't beat the French, but they beat the Russians, even though there were other factors at play and, you know, the, the Lenin's, uh revolution and all that. They, they still beat the Russians. So they go, we just did the thing that we couldn't do 20 years ago, and I can't believe that we did it. Let's go do the thing that we did 20 years ago and won, and it'll be easy, you know? And, and so I think that's the way that they're thinking. And because they did um, the impossible... And taking down France, there's no possible way they're going to screw up taking on Russia, because even last time they' were fighting on two fronts now I mean, they have Britain there and they've been fighting the Battle of Britain, but for the intent and purpose of most of it, they're they're going to be fighting on a single front, and they did it while they were fighting on two fronts in World War I. There's no way this thing's going to go wrong, and once it starts going wrong, they're almost they're almost in denial of it being, okay, we've missed our deadlines, but but still it's just going to be a little bit from now and then you know oh it's it's the rainy season we're kind of kind of gonna be bogged down but you know once it freezes we'll just go out and we'll finish this thing you know and it's never really oh no we've gotten into something that we can't really uh we can't really end we're really in this thing that um we can't finish on our own terms maybe we should try to do something about it it's it's just always no we're going to we're going to win in a little bit like it's it's not gone exactly to plan, but it's it, it's still going to happen it's still going to happen, and they just never give that up and that's something that is always kind of it's always kind of looked at previously in older documentaries and stuff like that. It's like the Germans had this amazing run, then they just stopped in front of Moscow, and they shouldn't have done that, and you know they they, they were going to win anyways, but they they're having significant problems, and it all kind of stems from this idea of we're just going to win. Don't worry about it. They're not putting the planning into this that they should for if something bad happens or to take it on as if it is this big thing that they need to. They're taking it on as this, uh, it's just the Soviets, you know, we we don't have to try very hard.
0: Do you think it would be fair or unfair to say that there was this kind of swagger or even you know, racial superiority complex that existed in the minds of the German soldiers in Operation Barbarossa. This idea of, you know, due to the um, rapid successes of the Blitzkrieg campaign, um, certainly the fall of France that you just mentioned as well, that, you know, Russia is going to be a piece of cake.
1: Um, Absolutely. And you see that from the top and the bottom. Uh, You mentioned the racial aspect. Um, Way back when, Hitler's writing Mein Kampf in the 20s. He's talking about how the Soviet Union is the bastion of Judeo-Bolshevism, like this, the source of all evil in the world. And it needs to be taken out by pure Aryan Germany to make sure that they're, you know, th- that evil is wiped from the earth. And you see how seriously they take that in things like the criminal orders that kind of make it into this uh, no quarter ass, no quarter given war of shooting commissars, uh, starving POWs to death. Uh, Really showing the Soviet people that, okay, you can either fight back or you can be killed by the Germans. And it kind of gives them this extra resolve um, to know that the Germans are basically planning to wipe them out and they're making it very obvious of this. Um, There's also, uh, you know, the Einsatzgruppen squads that were not used in the West, but were used in Poland and in the Soviet Union, showing that this this is really a racial cleansing kind of thing. And it all does get back to this, um, the Nazi ideology and this superiority of the Aryan race and how, you know, these are just slobs. Like, how hard can they fight back? How, how can they beat us? Regardless of the factors at play, how could they do anything to stop us? We are the superior German. Um, we are going to win this thing. And they're all very intertwined. And, and the, the way Barbarossa is conducted... In the ways that I was talking about just kind of assuming victory doesn't make much sense until you really look at the ideologies of national socialism and see how much they truly look down on these people and how little they think they're capable of. And then it starts to make sense of like, oh, this is just this is just like clearing out an infestation to them. It's not you know, this isn't a major war with a major top tier power, um, the Soviet union had bringing all its industry and all its everything to bear. This is, these are a bunch of people that are lesser than us and we are going to wipe them out very easily because they can't do things well. And, um, you know, you can, you get into a huge gray area when you start talking about the individual soldier and what they believed and what they did and all that. But you can definitely say from the top down, that was the general idea. And it's shown in The ideology of the nazis and then carried out in the criminal orders in the way that the war
0: was conducted yeah certainly fascinating well johnny thanks so much for coming on the podcast today and talking about operation barbarossa it's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast and certainly i'll put uh, links in the description of this episode to the three videos in your operation barbarossa series on youtube but thank you so much for joining me today and before I let you go, can you let all of our listeners know where they can find you and keep up with your work?
1: Yeah, um, Potential History on YouTube is where uh, pretty much all the videos are and stuff. I'm also on Twi- on Twitter at Tank Memes. Um, and that's really, I'm hoping to have a website coming out uh, towards the beginning of the year. So by the time this goes up on my channel and yours, it should be pretty close to completion, just a few weeks off. But um, yeah, those are the three main ones. And thank you so much for having me on. Uh, Thanks for letting me rant.
0: No problem. It's my pleasure. And thank you all so much for listening today to Stories of the Second World War. Please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting platform and consider leaving a positive rating and review. You can also find the podcast at storiesofthesecondworldwar.com with more information about the show. Thanks so much for listening. Join us right here again next week.